0: Good morning, everyone. We're going to get started. I am uh, filling in for Keith this morning, being that it is uh, February school vacation week. Welcome, everyone. And it's with great pleasure that I introduce Dr. Sam Casella for Grand Rounds this morning. Dr. Casella is a graduate of Union College in Schenectady, New York, and obtained his MD and completed his pediatric residency at SUNY Upstate and its medical center in Syracuse, New York. He did his pediatric endocrinology fellowship at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, after which he spent quite a number of years of his first part of his faculty career at Johns Hopkins University. He came to Geisel and Chad in 2001 as section chief for pediatric endocrinology and has since developed a great interest and passion for patient safety and quality. In this regard, he pursued further study and has taught patient safety courses at the Dartmouth Institute and began in quality and safety leadership as the medical director for safety and quality for Chad in 2007 became Associate Chief Safety Officer for Dartmouth-Hitchcock in 2015 and has led a team in our institutional efforts in the Solutions for Patient Safety program with notable ratings for our CHAD team in the top 10 percentile for the prevention of three hospital-acquired conditions. I got to work with Dr. Casella last week in a fabulously done Mark uh, Ru- Cause analysis for the interprofessional seniors from both Geisel and Colby Sawyer. That was a new effort and was just amazing. With uh, also congratulations to Bridget Mudge, Karen McCoy, and Teresa Murray for helping to co-lead that interprofessional faculty team. So I'm, I think it's gonna be the highest rated session in the course, so. Dr. Casella is currently an associate professor of pediatrics at Geisel and of the Dartmouth Institute and will talk today about metacognition in medicine, thinking about thinking.
1: Well, thanks everyone. Um,
0: Audio okay?
1: Great. So, pretty audacious title there, thinking about thinking. I think this is gonna be a lot of fun. Um, Couple serious parts too, but it's been a while since I've told this umbrella joke, and I apologize to those who've heard it before, but it's just kind of encapsulates my life. So in Chapel Hill, it happened that there were a series of rainy days in the morning that then would clear up by the afternoon. And each day I'd take an umbrella, ride the bus, but i forget the umbrella in my office. And sure enough, fourth day comes along all three umbrellas are in the office and I'm gonna be soaking wet. So I run to the bus and I'm sitting next to an elderly woman who has her umbrella between the seats. And then as I go to get off the bus, I instinctively kind of grab her umbrella, you know? (laughs) Very embarrassing, right? And she, you know, just politely, excuse me, Sonny, you know, that's, and I apologize profusely. So I wasn't gonna let that happen to me again, so That night, I made sure that I brought all three umbrellas back. And as I got on the bus, guess who was sitting next in in the only open seat? (laughs) And she just looked at me and said, I see you all had a good day. (laughs) Okay. So, sometimes errors are funny. Now, I did say that I get a little serious here. And this is actually the story of my sister. So about 70 years ago, when my mom had a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and an infant, the two-year-old wandered into a driveway next to our house, struck by an automobile, and fractured her femur. And that wouldn't have been too bad had it not been that they didn't realize she had developed osteomyelitis under the cast. And so for some eight or 12 weeks, this infection festered and it destroyed the growth plate. Well, partially destroyed. So she ended up with much more growth in one leg than the other. They knew this was gonna be problematic, so they actually pinned her good leg to stunt her growth on that side. And that was partially successful, but she still had this severe limp and a compensatory scoliosis. And ultimately, she had major surgery where they took two and a half inches out of her femur. This is a young adult. Spent eight weeks in a spica cast recovering from that, and so she was much shorter, but at least she was more balanced. She was also wearing a five-inch lift on one leg during college, which was, you know, caused a lot of distress for her. Uh, by age 50, her knee had suffered from this. She had a replacement of that. She later needed a hip replacement. And around 60, she developed multiple myeloma. And we don't know that that was related, but there's basically no history of cancer in our family, and we all worry or wonder if it was from the multiple X-ray exposures as part of her injury. She needed a bone marrow transplant, unfortunately went into remission for it. So all of this happened as a result of a single misdiagnosed. So how did this happen? So we jump to the you know easy solutions, right? That this surgeon was distracted. He may have been thinking something else. Maybe he just was focused on the fracture itself and not the possibility that there could be a medical thing going on. So I want to take a deeper look as to how I think this may have happened. So my objectives today are to talk about cognitive science and this dual processor therapy because it explains a lot of the way we think. It is a model. It's not proof, but it's a fun model to apply. And I'm going to talk about the way we could apply it to medicine. I also want to spend some time on cognitive bias because it turns out to be very relevant to medical assessment and diagnosis And my hidden agenda here is to convince you that didactic lectures are still helpful in some settings. I don't know if you heard the announcement, but UVM proudly announced that there will be, their entire medical education will not involve a single didactic lecture, that that is their goal. Okay, so I was a math chemistry major and I was a big Spock fan. And so I thought that most of these failures were a failure of logic um, but it turns out to not be so. It's actually in this other thing where we spend most of our time. But I did want to tell you the source of this. And this is a great book by Patrick Crosscarry, uh, talking about diagnostic error. And he really relates this in a wonderful way. It just came out in 2017. It's based on the work of Daniel Kahneman, who is a psychologist, but won the Nobel Prize in economics for this theory. And for some fun, This Is Your Brain on Music is a wonderful thing written by a well-respected neuroscientist, Daniel Levitin. And then Oliver Sacks wrote a book called Musical So we'll see how this all ties together. So I just want to touch a little bit on logic because Most of us are more familiar with deductive logic, right? If X equals 2 and Y equals 3, then X plus Y has to equal the addition, right? No question, as long as the postulates are true, conclusion is true. But we rarely get to use that in medicine. More we have to use an inductive logic. So we say, my patient's got chest pain and elevated troponin. People with elevated troponins may have myocardial infarctions. Therefore, my patient may have a myocardial infarction. Might be true. Probability is it's true, but it could be something else, too, right? So that's where we spend most of our time. And I was struck here that they mentioned a third type of logic, which they call abductive logic. that's much closer to what we do. We begin with specifics, the facts of the history and the story, but then we form a postulate. And we don't worry so much if the hypothesis is true so long as it's plausible and there's no better hypothesis available. So we test it as we go along, and if we get more supporting evidence, we adopt that. But if at any point another hypothesis comes that could better explain, we give up the first one and adopt the second. So I'm gonna give you a little funny example from my family. I have four sisters, uh, most of them older, three olders, and the two of them were very proud because they'd figure out the solution. One of them happened to be Rosemarie, the one who was injured, because they had to share a car, and you had to put enough gas in it for the next person who would take the car, and gas costs 32 cents a gallon, so you didn't want to leave one extra ounce of gas in that car than you had used, right? And you had to leave enough gas so the car could get to the gas station for the next person, but not any further. <laughs> so you need to know exactly when the car would run out of gas from where the gauge was. And so they went through logic like this. And the car runs out of gas, Aunt Louise, the younger will be stuck until she can get help. that's certainly true. Rosemary could help out by bringing gasoline, but how would she know when and where the car stops? Because there were no cell phones. She would be stranded. And if Rosemary drives behind with another car, she'll know exactly when Annalise needs help. And if Rosemary brings a full can of gas, she won't have to drive to the service station, she'll just be right there to, to help. And therefore, Rosemary should follow another car carrying a gas can to help her sister. All makes sense,
0: <laughs>
1: right? Everything's true. Anybody got a different solution to the problem? No. Well, I was 10 years old, and I said, you know, that's really great. But how about if you just put the gas can car in the gas can in the first car? <laughs> right? When she runs out of gas, she'll just take the gas can and fill it up. So they really missed the obvious solution, (laughs) even though it was based on all of these very sound facts, and you just get down this hypothesis and you can't quite get out of it. All right, so, audience participation. You have clickers in front of your uh, thing there. And what I want you to do is tell us the smallest number of cards you need to flip to prove that all red cards have a circle on the back. Now, every card is either red or blue on one side and has either a circle or a square on the other side. No no tricks there. And obviously, if you flipped all four over, you would know if that was true or not. But what's the smallest number that you can flip? And let's see if our audience, so if you would just tell me if you think we need Could prove it in one, two, three, or four. Is that pull one doing good? All right. Most people have had a chance. Okay, great. So someone thinks, a fair number think they could do it in one card. Most say two. Pretty good scatter, though, isn't there? So I'm curious, the people who said they could flip just one card, which, which card would it be that you would flip? Anyone want to volunteer? Okay, so you would flip it to see if there was a circle on the back, right? Great, or square on the back. But what about if this one, did I say square on the back? Yes. Circle, excuse me. So wouldn't you have to flip that one, too? Right, because if that was red, you'd disprove your hypothesis, okay? So most people um, put a postulate in here that isn't really necessary, and so they want to flip the third card. And the reality is you only need to know two. All right, you need to flip this one, because it might have a circle on the back, and you need to flip that one to make sure it isn't red. Okay. Because you don't care whether that's blue or red. It doesn't change the hypothesis there. So that's just a subtle example of how we put these hypotheses in place. We make presumptions, and then it shapes the logic we apply. All right, so on to the heart of the talk. And we're going to have two things that we'll refer to consistently, system one and system two thinking. In system one, very fast, largely subconscious, minimal effort. It doesn't tolerate ambiguity very well. And it's what most of us refer to as intuition. It is intuitive, that kind of, Um, Emotion would be a great example of this. You kind of instantly form an emotion based on someone's appearance. It just clicks. Counter to that is System 2. Slow, conscious, deliberate, requires effort, tolerates ambiguity. I don't know what's happened to my visual on one side. Requires effort, tolerates ambiguity, It's very methodical. Can you see this shape over here? It is so light. I'm wondering if the projector is not projecting blues. Yeah. Let me drop them down. Yes, I did. Let's see. Just barely, right? Okay, <laughs> all right, hate to do this in the dark. Unbelievable, okay, so that's it. System two, system one, looking at the same puzzle, and let's add a little more to our system, okay? And What I've added here, we'll have two paths, system one or system two, and right here, we have what we'll call the pattern processor. And that's really important, because that's one of the first things our brain does, is do I know this pattern, and if so, it's gonna route it up to system one thinking, okay? So here we have an example where we see the pattern, it looks, uh, it's known, and so it sends a signal up to system one, then system one reacts, and there's a process we call calibration where we kind of judge how the facts, the actual movements will be. We see it through system one and we make the decision. Okay, pretty straightforward. So here's an example. We know that that's a cow. And it really doesn't matter whether we do it sideways, upside down, at an angle. Now, you've never seen a cow standing on their head, right? But yet, our brains can instantly flip it, rotate it, and know that that's a recognizable pattern. Off we go to system one, straightforward. But what happens when you get a pattern like this? Oh, it's a little harder, isn't it? Now, we're not jumping. Do we need system one, do we need system two? to do it, and as you guess, we would recruit system two. But before we do that, did anyone see anything identifiable in that picture? And how many of them did you see? And just give us a poll on that.
0: All right. Yeah, I know the projector. Yeah,
1: I'm so sorry about the projector. I really ran through the test, and this comes out pretty well. Okay, so most people cannot see anything in there, but there are a third of the audience that saw one thing, and another 30% that saw two things in that same. image. So as I said, it's an unrecognized pattern. We're gonna go down to system two at this point, which is nearly invisible, around Calibrate. And off we go in the response. Now there's something else that goes on with system two. It's not only informing, but it's feeding back to the pattern processor. And it's saying, we've learned what this pattern means, and now the pattern processor the next time can route to system one. And I'm going to give you an example of just how quickly your pattern processor can work. So you're all puzzled. Well, we call that learning. You're puzzled by that picture I showed you, right? Oh, good. The things are becoming more visible. So here's that puzzling pattern. And I'm going to give you one clue. Can you see the outline? Did everyone see that blue line going here? Do you recognize the figure... It's with outlined by the blue line? Yeah, the head of the cow. Oh, it is, yeah. the head of the cow. Okay, so let's try that again. How many identifiable images did you see in that figure? Oh, how about looking at without the line? Okay, you don't need the tracing now, right? Okay, all right. Let's, let's see how many people... Caught that image. Not too many? It
0: doesn't seem to be taking the, you
1: know, the button press. Oh, you know what? I, I It says polling closed. I hit the button too quickly. All right, look at that. So now people are seeing it, and a lot of people are seeing too. okay? So let's look at that pattern again, and now I'll give you a second clue, second line here. And now can you see that this is actual a head of a cow, this is its body, and behind the first cow is the second cow, who's standing with her, but Okay, still struggling, can't, still can't say it. For people who do see it easily now, does it just pop at you, oh, yeah. right? Can you look at that now without seeing the cows? Yeah, once it gets in your head, you can't get it out. You've learned the pattern, pattern takes over, and you just jump, it's obvious. Okay, and you could come back and look at this tomorrow, and you would immediately see the two cattle in there. All right, so we won't belabor that, but I'm curious uh, how many people could see the two after we do it. All right, here's another fun example, concept. How many people have heard of earworms? Yes. A couple people. Ah, few, good. I just learned about this from Danielle the other day, and it turns out that um, Oliver Sacks devoted an entire chapter of his book, Musicophilia, to earworms. So these are those tones that get in your head, usually a jingle, and you just can't get it out of your head right? You've heard it. You don't want to hear it anymore, but it keeps popping up and coming in there, right? And usually they go away after a matter of days, but sometimes it really can go on for months. And yeah. So this was taken from Radio Lab, a great uh, episode called Musical Language. And this is Diana Deutsch, who's going to be talking here.
2: those that are really present, but they sometimes behave so
1: st- I'm sorry. So did everyone hear that sentence? No. Okay. We're gonna go through this once more time.
2: The sounds as they appear to you are not only different from those that are really present, but they sometimes behave so strangely as to seem quite impossible. Well I had sometimes behave so strangely move. The sounds as they appear to you are not only different from those that are really present, but they sometimes behave so strangely. Sometimes behave so strangely. Just those few words. Sometimes behave so strangely. I forgot about it. Sometimes behave so strangely. Sometimes behave so strangely. Behave so strangely. They to be sung rather than spoken. Strangely. Sometimes behave so strangely. Is it? Sometimes something? behave so strangely. Right. <laughs> yeah. You still hear the words, but there's some words rather than spoken words. Sounds like, you know, speech to begin with. And when you come to that very phrase, I seem to be bursting into start The sounds as they appear to you are not only different from those that are really present, but they sometimes behave so strangely as to seem quite impossible. Yeah, amazing.
1: The amazing. as they appear to you are not only different from those
2: that are really present, but they sometimes behave so strangely that it seems quite
1: impossible. Isn't that amazing? So you have now imprinted that musical interlude, and you can't hear that sentence now as a straightforward sentence, even though 60 seconds ago you can. And this effect can persist for two and three months. In fact, right? it's hard for me now because I just hear the music is in the first phrase So, again, we can recognize patterns, we can recognize them visually, we can recognize them orally. And the body is always defaulting to System 1 because System 1 is so effortless and fast, and that's where you'd like to be, okay? So there is this tug between do we stay in System 2 thinking or do we go over to System 1? So, again, I apologize for the washed-out slides. Um, But one other way we can drive things into system one is by rehearsal, okay? And I'm going to make a lot of analogies with music here and musicians rehearse because uh, any musicians in the audience? Okay, well, people who play, if they start thinking about the individual notes, what happens? Is they start stuttering, right? They can't get the flow of it. So it actually impairs the music if you're looking and saying that's an A and that's a B. Go through, it's too slow. So you have to get into this flow where you let system one take over. And as you rehearse song, more gets there. So here was a really interesting experiment. Well, let me first say, that we all recognize that as we go through the stages, which you cannot see, <laughs> you know, you start as a novice, you move forward in terms of some competency, advanced beginners, on to proficiency, and up to expertise. And by the time you hit expert, you don't need system two at all. All of this is being generated through system one Okay, so some people wanted to know, well, what does this look like on functional MRI, where we can see different parts of the brain that are activated under certain conditions? And it's a pretty cool model. They took jazz musicians, and they rigged up an MRI, so they could be lying there in that MRI, but also have access to a little plastic keyboard. And they asked them to do just the simple scales, you know, right up here, which they've essentially overlearned. It takes no effort on their part at all. It's just up and down. And then they said, "Well, improvise, but you've got to stay within every note in the scale." And this is what they came up with. They then had a jazz piece that they knew. They played and they compared it to pieces where they improvised. And they did functional MRI as this was going on. And this is what they saw. And remember, I'm an endocrinologist, so <laughs> I don't know exactly what's happening here. But the comparison is with the uh, normal scale. And everywhere you see yet red and yellow, that means there's increased activity in that part of the brain compared to when they were doing the scale. So it's dramatically different. All of this red stuff back here in that part of the cortex. And when they do the jazz improv, you see even more of this activation going on back there. And we're gonna come back to this in a moment as well. But clearly we use different parts of our brain when system one or system two are involved. I'm so disappointed that we can't see the uh, visuals, but go flex. So sometimes system one actually influences the effects of system two. And he used the term irrational override to describe this. Sometimes our emotions, this sense that we're in uh, bias, can affect this logical part of our brain, the system two thinking. And I'm going to give you another example of this with those musicians. Now, just instantly, what's that face tell you? The motion is sad, right? Kind of neutral in the middle, or ambiguous. Happy, right? Okay, they set up these jazz musicians, and I still can't believe the time scale is so short. So. Three seconds, they get a thing saying improvise. They show the image for 41 seconds. They do a rest, do the scale, show another image, with no, all over a matter of seconds. And they look at the music that they composed and what their brain is doing at the time they're doing it. Okay? So here we have it, when they were saw a positive picture, they had longer notes, they had more notes per scale, they had more use of major chords, which are generally the happier chords, and fewer of the minor chords, all a matter of seconds. So clearly just seeing an image of a face and emotion changed the construct that they would have. And amazingly, they could see this quite strikingly on the functional MRI. And the blue here is things that are suppressed compared to the baseline. The red and the yellow are things that are activated to it. And so you can see that within a matter of seconds, our brain is recruiting or repressing certain parts as a result of that emotional influence of System 1 on System 2. Is that slick? Okay. So not surprisingly, System 2 also is going to have an effect on System 1. And so we do have this, what we call, executive override. And we can purposely catch System 1 and stop it in its track. And we need to be able to recruit this um, to function. So I'm going to go back to the MRI, the very first one. And what's really cool is not only did the back, the rear part of the brain, posterior parts, activate in order to improvise, Look what's happening in their frontals. That blue means they are turning the activity off. So they have to actually de-repress to let the music flow and to improvise. It isn't simply acquiring the action. So I think that this really is executive override in action, that's just a 3D view. Again, um, this has to be depressed in order for this to fully function and get to that. Okay, so cool things with the Wolf Science. So let's digress a little bit for a great example of this. And this, in fact, is the title of Oliver Sacks' novel. And Tony Sequoia was an orthopedic surgeon up in um, Oh, gosh, Northern New York, Canton, New York, okay? And he just happened to be struck by lightning. I think he was on the telephone. So it was an indirect blow, but enough to knock him unconscious. And over the next nine days, he started to get this intense interest in music. And he had never been classically trained. I think he'd played a little piano as a child. But he could not get this out of his head. And it actually became overwhelming for him to the point where he was seeing complete compositions come across his brain. He couldn't listen to other music because his own music generator would override it and overrule it. He actually gave up the practice of medicine. To become a pianist, he became a professional pianist, and he actually composed an entire symphony, sym- symphony and uh, performed it um, at Clarkson College up there. Pretty phenomenal. And this is well documented by Oliver in a great description of the story. It turns out there are about 70 well documented things of what they call acquired savantism, usually as a result of some kind of trauma. Like lightning. One was near drowning in a, in a pool. And so, what really happened to Tony? You know, I think he lost that frontal lobe suppression part of it. He couldn't turn it off. And whatever those connections are were disrupted by the lightning strike. It's kind of interesting because it implies that behind us or within us is this creativity that could come out if we de repressed it. So, a great little story. All right, and then the last of these interactions is that you have a toggle switch. And so sometimes, you know, without our specific desire, we toggle from system one to system two. And again, remember, the tendency of the brain is once it wants to get up to system one thinking uh, and use that because of the expediency at which it can be done. Okay, so does that all make some sense? We've got these two competing interests that are going on, and the brain balances, and we choose between it. So let's go on a little more depth about the system one thinking. And we'll spend most of the time talking about system one, because that's where, ironically, Most of the errors happen. It's not in the system two logical thinking that we make the mistakes. It's much more often in the system one. And as I said, it's very fast, automatic, takes practically no conscious effort, and there's very little sense that we can control this, okay? Once we saw that image of the cattle, you couldn't turn it off even if you wanted to. If I played that sentence again, it would still be there. So how does it do it? <clears throat> how is it that it is so fast? And one of the concepts I want to talk about was heuristics. Heuristics are these mental shortcuts we use to get to the solution more quickly. They're great, they can be very helpful, but as you can imagine, they might also be susceptible. So, we're um, response. So I hope this graphic shows that there's an arrow that's going off in that direction at that speed, and there's another arrow that's going... You can't see it, oh. We can't see that. Oh, heavens, okay. Well, if you saw that, you would see that there's a possibility that the two could intersect. You switched system to Yeah. If you knew how many times I rehearsed this, I, it would just be amazing that I never thought that the projector would not show particular colors. Okay, so how would you go about figuring out if they're going to intersect, right? It's a mathematical problem, and you want to know if there's going to be a collision. So you could draw a line to intersect both routes. You could measure the distance, and I'm imagining here these are ships. Um, Measure the distance, calculate the time ship one is going to reach the intercept, which is t1. Distance from chart, we got t2, and if t1 equals t2 at any point, there's a collision, right? There were some great examples of this in the U.S. Navy over the past two years. Really, seriously, you know, these the, the sailors did not have fundamental sailing knowledge. Um, they, this. Huge gap in their training, and the captain, who did know, was not on the bridge. Okay, but that's a pretty, takes quite a while to do, right? Are there any sailors in the audience? Okay, where's Sarah? Okay, well anyway, what sailors learned is that if the angle between your course and their course is constant you are on a collision course okay so if you could see this you would see that the angle is constant as we progress up there and so what you do practically speaking is when you're looking on the boat is you pick something like a line and you line up with the ship that looks like it might be intersecting and if 15 seconds later, it's still in line. You are on a collision course. Okay, it's a great heuristic. It's one that sailors figured out long before there was mathematics. And it gets you to that answer more quickly. And again, if you could see it. I can see it, yeah. That's yeah. Okay. Right, because this angle right here stays constant. And you don't need to know how fast the other ship's going. You don't need to know how fast you are. All you have to know is that angle is not changing. Okay. And then pattern recognition is the other part that allows us to be so quick, right? How quickly could you recognize the image once you had the pattern? How quickly did you recognize the sketched cow in the different shapes? Very, very fast. So we all are trying to generate patterns as we practice. And the new term is illness scripts, okay? That you have developed a script for what a child with epilepsy looks like. And you add to your script as you get experience, and pretty soon you get very good at detecting the differences, okay? Something unusual about this child and this illness script that drives you off to do it. And this is the essence of learning, is we get our pattern recognition better and better. So this is an EKG that you can barely see. Anyone know what that is? So I think it's a left bundle branch block, okay? I'll tell you why I say I think. It's because I can't just look at an EKG and know what the rhythm is. Okay, this is the reason I'm not a cardiologist. I have to do something simple like pediatric endocrinology. (laughs) And because if I was faced with that, I would pull out my Dubin's and I'd remind myself that this is the way it's normally activated and with left bundle branch block it's reversed and so the waves go this way versus that. And literally, you know, to sort out whether it's left bundle branch or right bundle branch I would have to go through that whole cognitive practice. That would not make a great cardiologist, right? If you had to go through that effort every time. They can just look, see the image, say you've got this and that. So that's a great example. So if this is so wonderful, if this is so fast and efficient and effortless, why not just stay in System 1 all the time, right? And as you might guess, there are some negative parts of System 1 thinking. And here we are, the ones that Kahneman pointed out. It tends to invent causes and intentions, okay? There's not enough time to think about when someone looks at you like they're angry. You just immediately process that. Start, you know, why is a person angry? Your heart rate goes up. All of these things. It neglects ambiguity. So it's really black and white thinking. Your body's either gonna react or not react and it decides in milliseconds which way it's gonna go. And it tends to exaggerate coherence. It likes things to go together neatly. So if there's emotional coherence, it's happier. It I guess a good example of that was the musicians. They created a coherence between the emotion they were observing and the music that they played instantaneously. And then there's associative coherence too. If two things are happening at the same time, we take that association often as causality because this happened at the same moment that I saw that expression, this must have been a result of that person's anger. Example of associative coherence. And then there's also this, what you see is all there is, and it creates a sense of overconfidence. So as you can imagine, those characteristics could be a real problem as you're facing a difficult diagnosis, or making any kind of assessment for that matter. Okay, too much lecturing. Gotta do some fun stuff here, okay? So we're gonna test you a little bit on what's called a cognitive recognition test. So get out your clickers. These are simple math problems, and I'll show you some standards. Okay. So a bat and a ball cost a dollar ten. A bat costs one dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Just in cents. Okay, I'll give you, oh, let's say 15 seconds to think through that. Okay, so how much does the ball cost? 27, I think there were 29 people, but, all right. And virtually everyone says 10 cents, but a couple of people thought it was only 5 cents, right? We'll come back to that, 5 cents is the correct answer. All right, we'll come back to each of these. How about this one, takes five machines, Five minutes to make five widgets. Suppose you could get a hundred machines and you need to make a hundred widgets, how long would it take you? Okay. You take one minute, five, ten, twenty? 100? Oh, great, got 30 responses there. Okay. And most people said it would still take five minutes, although some people think it would take 20, and quite a few think uh, that it would take 100 minutes to do it. So that's what, 18 and 12, 30% off there. Okay, and this one's the toughest one and the last. In a lake, the patch of lily pads, every day the patch doubles in size. So if it takes 48 days for the patch to cover the entire lake, how many days would it take for the patch to cover half the lake? Take ten days, sixteen days, twenty four days. Ah. Uh-huh. We got a good number of smart people here. <laughs> yeah. Okay, forty seven days. Okay, so let's just go through these. This this one's just amazing, okay? Because well, a dollar 10 minus one dollar is 10 cents, that's your intuition, right? And you get that 10 cents for the ball stuck in your head, and you just want to assume that's the answer. But the reality is, if the ball is 10 and the bat is a dollar, then they'd only be 90 cents apart, right? And I told you the ball has to cost a dollar more. I mean, the bat has to cost so it has to be five cents and a dollar 5 cents. So what's happened here is there's an intuitive answer and there's a logical answer and if you tend to be intuitive in your thinking you go right to the 10 cent answer. Okay? Which was a lot of the audience. Same for this one. You see the 5 the 5 and the 5 and you want to divide it out and so many people will choose 1 minute here. Okay, or some people convert one minute and then multiply by hundred, and so say take hundred minutes. Well, the truth of the matter, if it takes five minutes for the process to go, it doesn't matter how many machines you have; it still takes them five minutes, right? If you had a thousand machines, it would make one thousand, which it's in five minutes. So again, the intuitive answer is jumping out at you, and unless you overrule it you go with the not. okay? One minute to make one. And that's the intuition logic and the logical. And then finally, this one, I'm, I'm impressed with how many people got this right, because the intuitive answer is that it would only take 24 days to cover half the lake if it covered the whole lake in 48. And most people will go right to this, but in fact, if it's doubling every day, then yesterday it was half the size. And the answer is 47. Okay, so how many of you in the audience actually answered all three of those correctly? And you guys have seen some of these before, right? Some repeats. Ah. Uh, well, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't put the choices up. Would you put, um, oh, yes, it's how many did you do? So did you get one right, two right, or three right? A, B, or C on your controller, okay? I'm sorry, you're right. It's, it's zero, one, two, three. Okay, you can re you can re It'll take the last one. Uh, did I hit the button? Let's see if it will get reset. Pulling open. All right. And there we go. So we do have a few in the audience who actually got three uh, of the three correct. Many people who got none, and the majority got one or two. So that test, as I indicated, was uh, called the Cognitive Reflection Test by uh, Shane Fryder. Again, it's in the economics journals, interesting to me. Um, But it measures how intuitive you tend to be in your thinking. And just for comparison, These, he's administered these at a number of places. So MIT grads, and and what they did was they had a normal exam and then they filtered these questions in between the normal exam. And only 48% of the MIT grads could get all three of those correct. So don't feel badly if you didn't do it. On the other hand, where's the, yeah, people watching fireworks in Boston. (laughs) 26% 26% of them could get all three right, okay? So there are some very smart people, or at least very logical people, anti-intuitive around Boston in general, and I apologize if you're from the University of Toledo, but those, those are the facts, okay? So it's really remarkable stable, and it's been uh, used repeatedly. So. I want to close up this by talking about cognitive bias because um, this is one more example of how system one can be routed off either by your intuition or your emotions or some preconception that you have and it will keep you from reaching the right answer. So aggregate bias, we refuse to accept that population studies apply to your patient. I know the research studies say differently, but my patient's unique, and so the rules don't really apply here. We do tend to do this. Anchoring. See a lot of this in our um, major safety events. We get the impression early, and we hold on to it. We don't want to do that abductive reasoning of giving up the first hypothesis when a better one comes along even in the face of contradictory evidence. I'm sure this is appendicitis. Availability. We tend to consider diagnoses that are fresh in our head, and maybe that you just read the journal article yesterday, or you just had a case like this last week, but we intuitively give priority to those diagnoses, even though it makes no sense medically. There's a confirmation bias, okay? We want to emphasize data that confirms our assessment, and we tend to de-emphasize the findings that are contradictory. How many times have you heard that expression? This lab's a red herring, right? Don't follow that path. It's misleading. One of my favorites, diagnostic momentum. Once the initial assessment is made, others assume it to be true, and off they go and everyone assumes that that diagnosis has been firmly established, never going back to the original. There's a framing effect. The way the resident presents the information to us changes the way that we perceive it. The sense of urgency, the likelihood of seriousness, and, and then fundamental attribution error. We attribute things to the patient rather than to the disease or we fail to account for cultural differences, sometimes judgmental. We have a bias that we'd like, good outcomes for people we like, and so we shy away from the negative outcomes. And then certainly premature closure, arriving at the conclusion too early. Another version of that is search satisfying. We search for a reason, and once we find one reason that will work, you stop the search. <clears throat> Triage cuing very important in inpatient. You know, if he was really that sick, they never would have put him on the ward. Who would have gone to the PICU? And so, therefore, they're not critically ill. And then this visceral bias that we have an affective relationship with our patient, and we allow that to reach the conclusion. So, I'm sorry this is a little rushed at the end, but. At some point, I'd love to come back to you and talk to you about ways you can de-bias, ways that you can take yourself out of it. Suffice it to just say that um, times where the patient was handed off, where the diagnosis was suggested to you, when it was your first diagnosis came to mind, are all times you might be susceptible to these. Is the patient I don't like, or maybe I like too much? Was I distracted, am I fatigued? Did I sleep well last night? Am I cognitively overloaded? Am I stereotyping? And have I ruled out the must not miss diagnosis? So I know that's a lot to cover in an hour. I apologize for the slides. I think it's obvious that system two is less error prone, but it's also slow, requires attention, and it can be disrupted when the attention is withdrawn. And this is a picture of Rosemarie. And you can see that she's a lot shorter than the rest of her siblings, but in her twelfth year of remission for multiple myeloma and still doing very well at age 72. All right. Thank you.